If you want to join me for an online masterclass and find out about your family, join me with the School of Life in Amsterdam. I'm doing two evening masterclasses on the 16th and the 22nd of May. You'll be able to interact with me, think about your family, think about how you can improve and change your family dynamics, think about where your family dynamics come from so you have a greater understanding. So join me on the 16th and the 22nd of May for an evening masterclass. You can get a 10 euro discount if you put in the code the school lower dash Julia. So join me 16th, 22nd of May. See you then. Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to season three of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us Hello, this Ruby week. Wax. Hello, Julia am, Samuel. <laughs> yes, I am very, very pleased to be seeing you. I rather kind of hate using your labels, but that is a kind of portal to get into someone, but it actually isn't the way I want us to be talking about you, but I'm going to anyway. So you're 69 and you're a comedian, an actor, a best-selling author, a mother of three children, a wife to Ed, and you've written a new, unbelievably brilliant book called I'm Not As Well As I Thought I Was. And I am delighted to welcome you on the Therapy Works podcast. Is she drinking vodka? Are you drinking vodka already? (laughs) No, I'm not. Thank you. Great. It's going to be Thanks a good record. Uh huh. <laughs> Can you imagine? I was saying before that it's really flattering for me to have you. You know, I think, oh, I'm not worthy. But I know you don't believe that because you're probably like me. But I do think, oh, it's, you know, Ruby, shave your legs. Point your toes. You've got Julia. You and I have met each other a number of times and... We both know that we can write books and we can give interviews and take interviews. And yet every time we start a new interview, there's, I don't think, well, for me, it's not imposter syndrome. It's just that kind of sense of, can I do this? Am I up for this? And I imagine in some way you're saying that too. I don't say it for every interviewer. Some interviewers, I'm still typing my book. Um, it's really arrogant that I think we're not going anywhere here. So I'll give you a little attention. But with you, I'm fully frontal. Good. So being full frontal, my first question to all of my guests is, what is a challenge you have been facing or have faced? And what was it about that challenge that was particularly difficult to overcome? Oh, um, the challenge was, uh, it, you know, imposter syndrome, welcome to the rest of the world. But I was really told for many, many years, probably 30, 
that I was an idiot and I'd imitate my parents in the book. It was worse expression, moron or sad sack. That, that really is like running your fingernails down a chalkboard. So I was under the impression, and still am, that I'm not very bright and I have to really fake it when uh, I'm around intelligent people. A little bit of sweat running down my face because I, I, I can't um, memorize facts unless I'm really interested. But if you tell me certain things, I'm not that interested in out. So in a political conversation, I'm really dripping in sweat. I can't. So, um, yes, that's my biggest challenge is to appear smart. Is to appear smart where there's a a very young voice and a 10-year-old voice and a teenage voice who's telling you that you're an idiot, that you're a nothing, you're a little sack. And is that, do you think that is the source of your bipolar and disorder and depression? The, oh, the I'm not, bi- of- Julia, I'm not bipolar. Okay. Because that's what it says, but you're not. So tell me what. I know. I, I'm, do you, I have do you disagree with labels? I, I do, but I know people who are bipolar and I wouldn't medicate myself for that particular pathology. Well, it's good to clarify that. So given that you have depression, is the source of it that that those critical kind of really diminishing shame-making voices? I don't um, believe that. It, it is nature-nurture. If I had five brothers and sisters, some of them would be quite powerful. Others would be, you know that. I blame it on them because I need somebody to pin it on. I think they traumatized me, but uh, if the rest of my background was nurturing, maybe that wouldn't have been so effective. Yes, that you had a kind of genetic predisposition and... Maybe if you had been given enough warmth and affection and, and secure attachment, not non-judgmental kind of security, then you may not have been depressed. But I guess what one of the things that came up for me in your book was either you'd had 12 years without depression and the kind of Jaws music that led you to recognize, oh my God, I'm back again. And I wondered if you could give us some insight into that. That's why I wrote the book. I don't think it's just me or older people or any age uh, that after the lock-in, a lot of people, the conversation, if we're lucky enough, maybe I'm, if we're lucky enough, say, is there anything else to life than just uh, success, looking great, whatever these ridiculous demands are that this culture makes on us. I thought we were over it, but clearly we're not. Uh, so a lot of people came out of that lockdown because they were suddenly slapped in the face by existential reality is to say, is there more to my life? Do I have more to give than just a job or same old, same old? So I thought that was the motive I wrote about. I thought I'm going to go on big journeys, would give me some meaning, give me some depth. So that was the book. I was going on specific journeys, sort of uh, doing an Adrian Gill, you know, reviewing my my experiences. And then my friend read it and said, this is just a travel novel. This is kind of boring. (laughs) Um, uh, What's the point of it? And there was no point. And I found no meaning. I did while I was there. But then the way I live, for example, I did a 31 day retreat, silent retreat. And coincidentally, the last day I was offered a job that was really lucrative selling potato chips. And um, after 31 days, and I was quite serene and loved myself and was 
you know, there's never no thoughts, but I could focus on nature. I could, I was adorable inside. <laughs> and I jumped for the potato chip van and destroyed it, destroyed it. Just, and every time I took an, uh, a trip that gave me some heart or meaning or purpose, I destroyed it. I sabotaged, I ended up in a mental clinic, <laughs> not because of the potato chips. And you and I know maybe the depression was before the journeys. You know, the journeys just happened to be there. We don't know. You can win an Oscar and still want to kill yourself. So I can't pin the tail on anything. But it certainly was uh, a roller coaster ride that maybe I shouldn't have been on. So it makes a more interesting book, even though I had to sacrifice my mental health, that the book is written in the mental clinic where they're plummeting me down as to why there is uh, a hole. I made things funny without investigating what was there. And then I do find out what happened. So I'm, it is really the journey to find, but I'm going down rather than paradise and working with refugees and swimming with whales and joining Christian monasteries. All interesting, but there was a hole in my heart. So it, I did sabotage everything. I mean, I think that is such an important message, isn't it, that we can do all this external stuff of going on spiritual retreats or swimming with whales. And all of those things did sound, I mean, that healing group of women sounded like an amazing experience. But in the end, unless those experiences can be received by a secure foundation internally, by a capacity to take them in and integrate them and let them expand you, they just fall down the hole. And so... In some ways, whether you were busy after them or not, they were going to slide off you. And what I kind of understood from being in the mental institution is that you, and I think maybe it's true for all of us, unless we're prepared to face the source of our pain and our emptiness, the kind of sense of scarcity that can literally drive us mad, it will stay repeating in us as a kind of feedback loop that can be quiet for a while, but it will come and get us. It will come and get us, yeah. I I, I did record conversations I had with a therapist. I, I have a degree in therapy, but I haven't had therapy for 25 years, partially because I was busy studying mindfulness, and there are benefits in it. Don't think I wasted 25 years. But uh, there was something very wrong, and it happened uh, when I was in the clinic, I said to my psychiatrist, Jamie, please change some meds. And he said, I'll only do that if you see a therapist, an EMDR therapist, which I thought that's ridiculous. But she's somebody you recommended to me. And she did take me down that rabbit hole uh, really gently. And so I found out something quite horrific about myself while I was in there. So unless I found that out, I wouldn't be able exactly what you said to have any of those experiences stick and permeate. Can you tell us what you found out through your EMDR therapist? Uh, well, uh, part of it was that I turned my experiences into comedy at a young age because I learned that was how I got people to find me funny because I could turn my parents' dialogues into, I didn't even have to edit, straight onto the page. And I first became well-known because I did my parents. Alan Rickman used to cry laughing. And so I said in the book, to make Rickman laugh was like winning a gold medal. And we were in the Royal Shakespeare Company yeah, together. Yeah. So my job was, my mission was to get him to adore me. And I did, you know, he's my 
you know, uh, my brother, my he was husband, a really my close director. friend. Yeah. So that was my mission is to make him laugh. But what I didn't do was uh, investigate what was so horrific underneath that. So she took me down slowly, slowly. I thought it was ridiculous in the beginning. I said, what's the point of me telling you this if it's not funny? And she wouldn't. uh, She said, cut the comedy. And I said, well, that's my best material. Anyway, eventually she got me down there. My dad, he was violent and really they they came from Austria. They were immigrants. And there was war declared in my kitchen. You know, it's almost they took the violence from escaping and brought it to Evanston, Illinois. So they'd pay, you know, they would hurl abuse at each other. And I was in the middle. So they could pin their failures on me that I was an idiot. Too much was. And, and when the when I was growing up, I, I did fulfill their um prediction is that I was a failure. I was told I had to go into remedial classes and their dream came true that I couldn't read. I couldn't uh, focus. And I, and what I did find out, one of the things is Alan's uh, widow asked me a little while ago, when Alan came to visit you, which was quite a lot, why did he go out at night with friends? Cause they were friends of mine too. And you didn't. And I gradually realized uh, that I was locked in, that I never really got out of my house. Um, and I never had a key to get back in. So to me, it's a haunted house. I can't stay in houses. I have the opposite of agoraphobia. I've got to get I got to get out because to me, being at home is torture. I'm still at the mercy of it. Like I'm in my house now and I'm slightly I've got to get out of here. So that's why I like traveling all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I realized with those experiences, I was running away. I wasn't running toward. So I, I was a lock in, but not in the sense I was kept in the attic. I mean, I could see you smiling as you were telling me some of those stories of your p- parents, like the sort of default, making it into a kind of funny story. But as I was hearing you and the threat and the violence that you experienced in your home, around your kitchen table, that still sits in your body nearly seven decades later, that sits in your home, which is now safe, just makes me feel a little bit sick. You know, the how. Th- it lives on like it's haunting you and and there have sounds like there have been really times and friendships that have kind of given you a break but that i guess what i got from your book and from what you're saying now we don't get over this stuff we do find a way of supporting ourselves through it but it stays in us the yeah. injury stays in us well it's but as time goes on the scar gets fainter and fainter and this is where the mindfulness comes in that's nice when i do feel the trigger and i do feel the trigger uh i didn't get it early enough with all these i hadn't gone on anything that intense so i missed the trigger and that's where i flipped it carried out of a christian monastery into a mental institution i didn't feel it coming until the last moment whereas what mindfulness does is it, it's like a barometer for the inside rather than reading the weather outside, you can read it inside. So in the past years, I could feel when it was starting to roll. And that's the beauty of mindfulness is I can, and then you can do something about it. So that's what mindfulness gave me is I could smell it coming. And then I would turn off everything that would stimulate me and the cortisol would settle and I wouldn't get depressed about depression, but I'd still get depression, but it passes quicker than five months. So this time I missed it. But what mindfulness does is I can get my heartbeat down I can focus when I need to focus. 
So mindfulness gave you a lens into yourself that enabled you to hear the threat, the Jaws music in your body so that you could then use the mechanisms that brought the threat down. So you'd lower your cortisol, you'd calm down and you wouldn't go into a depression. And yeah. there was something that if happened. If you catch it early enough. Yeah, if you catch it early enough, like early intervention yeah. in all things. Yeah. But there was something that you didn't hear at this time. And and so you were bulldozed into such a depressive state that you were in a mental institution for six weeks because you didn't have the insight. But sometimes, and this might be annoying and wrong, so put me straight, sometimes it's thought of that a breakdown is a breakthrough. And I wondered that no one wants to be in that pain. But it did mean that you had therapy in a way that you hadn't had and understood some insights that you hadn't had. I, you know, I'll never be grateful for having depression. Uh, I, no. If you ask me, to, if I would have been a housewife in Evanston or had depression, there's no question. Nothing is this agonizing. I'd rather not have the depression. It doesn't teach me anything. It, it's when whoever you are, this this person, this character, this person who speaks is gone. So you're just a shell. And it's a miracle to you that you can move your arms. The person behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz is out on a lunch break that lasts five months. So even to move anything is, you think, who's doing this? And if somebody, uh, they treat you as if you're normal and you really are dripping in sweat trying to remember who you were supposed to be. I have a kind of rigor mortis grin on my face and I've been on television caught in those headlights. There is nobody at home. And I had it since I was a kid, but we thought it was uh, Epstein-Barr or uh, glandular fever because it's physical. And I wish people would understand there is no such thing as mental. Physical and mental are a onesie. There's no difference. It's a physical illness. So why is there a stigma? But that's another story. But it hurts. My arms are empty. My legs don't move. And the voices are impossible. It's it's a holocaust inside and you're dead. So it's very hard to make decisions. And a nurse has to help you cross the room. And you really think suicide would be better because this is too painful. I mean, that is a very clear, devastating description that that is like a holocaust inside and you you'd rather be dead is because of the the level of the pain is so great. It's literally unbearable mm. in every way, in every cell of your being, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And the emptiness, the kind of deficit, the inability to be a human being that you can kind of split from yourself, that you're not a being. You're not a being. You're not a being at all. And there's no connection. It's loneliness squared. You can't imagine how freakish you feel. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to have insurance and you can get in a, a mental ward. And and I have toured national health mental wards. I did my first show in about, I don't know, 70 of them. And so some are magnificent. I wouldn't say this private one is too hot. So it's not a question of having money. But if you're around people that have something similar, it's the only relief there is. It's the only relief because you know you don't have to be entertaining and you feel their pain. And it kind of nullifies yours a little bit. 
And in some ways, being in a place that recognizes that you're not a being, that you don't have to perform, you don't have to be Ruby, there's a relief in that. There's a like, okay, yeah, I can just... They see me and I see them. They see your suffering and they allow your suffering. They hear your suffering. And they allow your suffering. And they love you because uh, they know, you know, you're in the club. You really do bond with mental patients. I do quite quickly. That's exactly what I was going to say. As much as nobody wants to be a member of this club, being in the club together, it's like, you know, I see you, you see me, and yeah, we, we've we arrived. get it. That smoking room is my happy place because <laughs> they're all there. <laughs> and everybody will talk, you know, oh, what happened? Show me the cuts. Oh, those are interesting shapes. Nobody's offended because they know you're from that country. I don't cut, but, you know, they know you're And they're disturbed. not scared of you. And they're not trying mm -mm. to tidy you up or shut you down. And you're not in the institution now. So there's a bridge between then and now. And now I can't remember what it was like to be in the institution because it's the same with childbirth. Uh, nature makes sure you don't remember. Otherwise, you'd never do it again. Same thing with this. I don't really remember. So when you ask me to describe it, I have to go back um, and kind of get a taste because, boy, does your mind block it out. So is there anything I need to do to get you out of there? or Have you stepped out or, already? You mean of the mental institution? Well, in the memory, if I put you back in there to remember, is there anything we need to do to come back? I just into realized I was picking something and there's blood coming through. <laughs> I've never seen that before. Um, yeah, I'm out of the memory, but it's interesting. I'm, I was picking something on my leg, I guess, while I was talking. Of course. And there's yeah. blood. It's like self-harm, that so pain bizarre. of the picking. Is, I've it, never done that before, unless I spilled coffee. But anyway, it's more dramatic to say it's blood. I'm listening to a fantastic podcast I'd love to recommend to you called The Great Women Artist Podcast, presented by art historian and curator Katie Hessel. In it, she interviews fantastic artists on their careers like Tracy Emin to Marina Abramovich or writers such as Deborah Levy and Ali Smith. And she asks them what other women artists are most important to them. And there's an alignment with my podcast because she also brings in family members. The aim of the podcast is to share the stories so that as many people as possible recognize how brilliant the subject of art history is. And I would also add that how art is enriching to our lives because it can find ways of expressing who we are as human beings. So go and find the Great Women Artists podcast and I think you'll really enjoy it. So where do we want to go? You lead me. Well, I, I don't mind talking about the book because it is my baby and I'm, I hope it, it, it breathes. You know, I hope it's not a miscarriage. So there's a vulnerability about birthing something like this out in me. Uh, so uh, rather than talk about me, it is a baby. You know, you know that feeling. If it doesn't flourish, there's devastation. I mean, the book is you. So when we talk about the book, we're also 
talking about you. I mean, I, I think this is your most personal book. From you know, I, I've loved all of your books, but this is the one that I feel I actually got to know you as well as understand you and your experience of yourself in your most raw state, but also that your humour, as much as it was a defence that protected you, which in some ways led to your breakdown, it is also where joy lives in you, isn't it? I mean, the book is funny. I, well, when I describe the journeys, I don't get all, you know, oh, yeah. I suddenly my eyes roll back and I screamed hallelujah. The 31 silent day retreat is to me. You can't get better comedy fodder. You know, the way you imagine when you're not speaking people, you give them characters. And I realize we do that in real life. We create a world. That's really fantasy. Like I was sure the guy next to me was staring at me. He was very young. And I kept looking, thinking, oh, he's really into me. When at the end, when we could speak, Fancy I said, did me. you ever notice me? He said, he said, he didn't even know I was there. There was another woman who I hated because she took my place in the cafeteria every day. And there were turkeys and I fell in love with the turkeys. I became obsessed. I named them. I, I followed them around, but I hated her. She was adorable. A man I thought was an idiot. Uh, I mean, really, he took too many servings. He was overweight and he ate with his mouth open. He was a Harvard professor. So you really realize you cast the world according to your whims. It isn't reality at all. But um, but I did turn into a wonderful person by day 30. And at one point it was just horrible. Because I have such a big ego, sometimes you had to um, gong for 45 minutes to show it was over. So they'd ask for volunteers. So you go to the front of the room. So um, I sat in the front. There's Buddhas behind me. I had to gong. And as I was sitting there, I wanted to say something funny because I wanted them to understand I was really important. And I'm in America. Nobody knows who I am. And I'm staring at the boys. And I'm scared that they'll think I'm a perv if they catch me. But they're just sitting, you know, stock still. And then at the end, they bow. But they don't bow to me. They're bowing to the Buddhas behind me. But I had, I bowed back. My fantasy was they were bowing at me in appreciation. And then I sat there waiting for them to ask me for an <laughs> autograph. <laughs> this is a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> and then the ego was so big. I was on the dishwashing committee and he had to sign up for work. I came out of the kitchen because my job was just with my rubber gloves to stack the plates. I came out of the kitchen, stood in the dining room and had people never have hand me their plates. So I'm in the front. So they would bow to me there. Can you imagine the ego was at work because nobody had ever, it was valet service, took their plates, they bow. And, um, and then I'd go <clears> in the kitchen <throat> no, I, with my rubber gloves, thinking I was quite attractive, wearing boots, no makeup, rubber <laughs> gloves, and wearing the same outfit for 30 days. <laughs> oh, they recognized me. Oh, they did. I mean, your great gift, Ruby Wax, is your capacity to kind of watch yourself while you are performing and then outside of yourself, looking at yourself. I mean, I think one of the most touching parts of the book was when Ed was diagnosed with prostate cancer and you both recognize that he is your home and your safe place and you need him and you really love him. And even as he's in the the um, doctors with you, you start being difficult 
or in the car, you're starting being demanding. I'm nagging him again. Yeah. What's that about? Well, I never saw parents who got on. I'm not blaming it, but they, they were after each other's throats. So being loving to a partner is not in my toolkit. And yet he stays. So there's something. Well, something's wrong with him. (laughs) Obviously, something in his upbringing uh, made him stay with somebody who's so rude, so rude and so demanding. Yeah, I must be a bitch to live with. I am. Can you be serious for one moment and not, you know, tell a story? What do you think is going on between the two of you? You've been married, what, 25 years, 28 years? What do you actually feel is going on between you? I don't know. I'm being honest. I'm working on it. We do live lives like this, and that's probably why it lasted. I'm going to Japan next week. I wouldn't think of going, hey, Ed, you want to come along? Or I meet it tonight. He happens to know the people that we're having dinner with, but I make plans. I don't include him. Why, Why would I bring the other person I'm friends with? I don't like that at all when people do that to me. I don't, I don't like your partner. Why are you bringing him along? Unless you do. But usually I just want to talk to women alone. I don't want a man sitting there. What, where have you got to so far? Why, how you've managed to be together for so long? If all you do is yell at him. I don't know. I really don't. You'd have to get him up here. Yeah. I throw him a funny line once a year. I'm not being funny. But when I'm funny, he really loves it. We met while he was directing me doing comedy. So he remembers those days. But I'm not funny alone. I mean, in the house, I'm not funny. I'm desperate to get out of the house. That sounds incredibly painful, that the house is the place of danger for you. Yeah, it is. It's a place of danger. I'm working on it. I mean, I'm in it now. But when before this interview, I, w- I couldn't be in it. But now I have a focus. And when I'm writing a book, I have to go sit in a cafe. I loved it when my kids were here. and They were growing up. I loved it then. Now, of course, they're not here. I always had to get out of the house before I had kids. So it's the echo of your childhood, no? Childhood, yeah. There's such fear that I'll be locked in or won't be allowed in or they'll start screaming. That's why I like being in, there's twice it happens. I'm in monk cells. If I'm in a small room and I can see the doorknob and I can lock it because all my dreams are my parents burst in. So I had never any privacy, never privacy. I still live in fear of the door bursting in. So I, if I'm in a cell, like about six feet by nine feet, I don't know if that's exactly right, but that's what you get at the monastery, the Buddhist and the Christian. Those were my, that's when I feel safe. The smaller the room, the better. People will go, oh, well, she's lucky enough. She's got a room. But uh, that just happens to be the case. Tiny rooms, I'm safe. Because I can see all all four walls. That's the whole house. I don't mean there's any other rooms. That's it. No, I mean, what I get is that you are utterly vulnerable to that tiger, or in your case, one of one of your parents, coming to get you, unless you have this tiny space where you can, you know, there's no distance where they can sneak up on you. If you're in a tiny space... Yeah, you can see but exactly they still what's did. going on, and they still did. I had a bathroom, and they'd invade that one and drag me out, which had no lock. Oh, Ruby, 
it's a an agony that though, isn't it? Not being safe anywhere. Well, I'm safe in a hotel room and I'm safe traveling. So it's not like um, I'm haunted all the time. The minute I leave this house and I'm going somewhere, there's such relief. Well, what I got from your book, and maybe I'm wrong, is that through the acceptance and commitment therapy, you kind of recognized a, a, a greater flexibility within your thinking, within your being, that allowed a bit more space for joy and helped you recognize that you're not just your depression, that you're more than the label. You're more than yeah, I, what Yeah, not you when feel. you have depression. But when you're out of it, you're out of it. I mean, you're back in the saddle. There's no question. I don't remember it lifting slowly. You just, it must have been. And I had RTMS, which was, you know, this procedure for 20 days straight. It's like eat. It's like electric shock therapy, which is, unfortunately, you can't remember your last name uh, afterwards. But um, this is with magnets, so there's no side effects, and it recalibrates the neurons. I'm making it simplistic, but the point is, it's a shakeup, and they do pick up communication again. Now, it works on 60%, they say, of people. The other 40 people I was with, it didn't work at all. They were still numbed out, but I came back. So um, I, I do go back for top-ups. So I don't know if it was that. I think it was that. The therapy, the change of medication, the being, the holding in a, in a clinic, something did change it. And then when you're back, you're back, and you're so happy. I went bicycling in Italy the day I got out. <laughs> did you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm back now. Yeah. I have to be wary, but I'm back now. And if the book doesn't work, I have to be really careful. Because I felt as we're talking and and it obviously it's so personal and you've written it all down, but I can feel awareness talking to me, although you actually trust me. So I guess it's, there's something about going back, coming forward, that you're constantly having to revisit in some ways what you want to kind of not revisit. It's quite complicated in launching this particular book. I don't know why I write something so personal, but I was working through things and sort of using the book as an excuse to get it out on paper. It's always for me. People say, well, who do you write this for? What do you? I don't know who I write it for. But the book about the brain, I wanted to figure out how does this, this, you know, we're still in the foothills, but how does memory work? How do I perceive a vision? And that's so encouraging that we still have the same equipment, all of us, even though some people are slightly damaged, but all of us are made the same. The most personal is the most universal. And so that's the power of your book is the honesty and the authenticity. Like you really tell your experience of very profound depression. But I guess what I was saying is having done it, you then have to keep constantly revisit it in promoting the book, which is quite a challenge in itself. No, it isn't actually. If I was going into one, there'd be such anger, you'd feel it, you know, that I wouldn't want to talk about it, but I'm not ill now. So it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But I do trust you, so that's a different kind of interview. This won't be happening with anybody else. You know, I wouldn't go into this detail, but I know you understand. I get it, and I I think it's what you're doing is incredibly 
important. I mean, for many reasons. One of the reasons I think is that people bandy the word depression around, you know, when they feel a bit worried or a bit low. And what you describe in your mental illness and being in a mental institution is agony and unbearable and life-threatening. But I hope that the only reason I am allowed to do that is because it's funny. I'm sent books all the time about depression and I want to slam it shut and go, sweetheart, I know. But I think you make it fair. If you're really funny, then you can do it unless you're Dostoevsky. But underneath it, you know something's going on. To make it fair to talk about agony, you have to make people laugh in my book. That's an amazing um mechanism humor, isn't it? What is it that we can hear unbearable experiences if they come with humor? How do how do you make sense of that? If you make me laugh, I can I can watch you suffer. Great comedy is suffering. In my particular book, I don't deserve talking about the darkness unless I make it very light. That's just my philosophy. If you want to write a book about your depression, fine. I'd find it kind of boring. You know, unless you were a great writer. But in my book, because I'm, I don't think I'm in that ballpark, but I can be funny and I can be funny about what happened in there. And I hope you understand. And then I swing it to the darkness, but it's the back and forth that I think makes it interesting. You know, it's the book Running with Scissors, Curious Incident of the Dog, there was humor in it. You know, a lot of books about a mental disorder, if they can make it hilarious. But as you're kind of reflecting on what you've been through and where you are now, given that you're not in a depression, what have you learned? Well, that, uh, you know, meaning is an outside. As I say, at the end of the book, I do come to a conclusion. Your life doesn't go the way you want. You can want all you want. It's not going to go your way. So it's like it's learning to be what you're lucky about, to be grateful about anything, even if it's breathing in and breathing out. But I did get over the fact that home is wherever I go. There's no shame in wanting to travel as long as I'm not running, but I'm curious. I have to make sure this wasn't just to get away. I am curious and maybe my roots are traveling. I don't want to punish myself for what happened in my childhood. I I want to forgive myself. It wasn't my fault. As long as I don't hurt anybody, I can live the way I want to live. Maybe it's unusual things that made it worth it was saving people in, who lived in Afghanistan, finding faith with the Christian monastery. All of those things were really important. I will go back, but I have to deal with my trauma first. And I'm working on it. It's not going to magically disappear because I finished the book. No. I mean, that's such a powerful insight, isn't it? That we can want all we want but actually we have to find a way of living with who we are and what we've got and what's inside us and giving yourself permission to be who you are, given all the kind of really unbelievably destructive and sadistic and terrible things that happen to you, giving yourself permission to travel, to live in the way that you live with curiosity and bring a lot of good along with you on the way for other people is compassionate, isn't it? It's a Mm. kinder way of living. So you're not beating yourself up and punishing yourself with a massive stick 
for just being you. You're kind of letting yourself be you. And that feels very powerful and not easy to do. No, but I'm really, I'm, I'm good at what other people find terrifying. And that's the good news. But I can't cook a cake. <laughs> and now I forgive myself for that. Let somebody else do it. <laughs> and there is a paradox, isn't there, that you have so much internal terror that in some ways terror is familiar territory that allows you to face fear that other people wouldn't. But the minutiae of making a cake, like that is never going to happen. Never going to happen. let yourself be with that. I did a show um, recently that comes out before the book called Castaway, where I had to live alone on an island in Madagascar uh, and survive. Wow. And there was a cyclone going on at the same time. The crew came with me the first three days and then they leave me. And so I had to survive there. And it was you in the elements with up. Uh, I mean, the full storm going on, it was King Lear levels. And I had no fear at all, none. And I realized I was built for disasters. And it was my refugee spirit. They kept making bets that I'd leave, and I never did. And it was bad. And going to the bathroom at four in the morning in torrential rains and storms is no easy thing. But I was not leaving. So I that was pretty impressive. What that tells me, and listeners, is when you have been through such internal, violent experiences, like weather, storms, yeah, yeah. nothing. I can I've do that. I've had them inside. It kind of does. Yeah. But what it shows is that the inside is so much worse than what the external <laughs> was, was throwing yeah. at you. It's like, what the fuck? That is really fucking bad. Yeah, war would be, I'd be okay. I mean, I'd be scared shitless probably if, if I was in the front line, but, you know, just the general noise wouldn't do it for me. I got more noise going on inside than any cyclone. Should we end on that point, Ruby Wax? Okay, th- Julia, thank you. Thank you. And it was a really powerful, wonderful conversation. I thought so too. Thank you. Free therapy. Now you're wonderful. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently, you'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts Sophie are. Sophie and Emily, it's lovely to see you again for this third series and about my conversation with Ruby Wax, which I thought was a very fascinating conversation. And it was it was quite a ride. <laughs> but I actually had a question for you, Mum, which was, yeah. what was it like? interviewing someone who's usually the interviewer? That's such a good question. I mean, I I never felt like I was in the driving seat, although I really did feel that there were times that we had real connection and I appreciated her openness. But I, 
I had so many thoughts traveling in, in my head at the same time. One was I didn't want to trigger her to be distressed about something that was one of the most distressing experiences of anybody's life and, and her life. And also the question I wanted her to explore with me was what was the cause of her unraveling? And I think we did get there in the end. There's a lot of push and pull in the dynamics between us, I felt, which I enjoyed, actually. Yeah, push and pull is good. Um, yeah. It also really made me think about diagnosis and mm. the usefulness of it, but also the spectrum of it, right? So she obviously experienced this horrendous, completely debilitating depression that she gets periodically, like life-threatening, yeah, depression, um, which lots of people experience too. And it really is, like you say, life-threatening. But depression is a spectrum. So I think for our listeners out there who maybe have just been feeling really, really low for a long period of time, who feel kind of unmotivated, like life is not really worth living not suicidal, but just kind of feeling like, what's the point? Empty. Empty, Yeah. Mm. It's still really, really worth seeking help because that is a form of depression too. And you don't need to be in a state where you need to be somewhere inpatient in order to really benefit from all different kinds of help, whether that be therapy, medication, combination of the both, or just kind of seeking some guidance around, like, I don't know what's going on, but I've been feeling like this for a while. And I think so many people say, oh, like, it's okay because I'm not this bad. I'll just sort of keep on trucking kind of thing. Mm. And mm. don't keep on trucking. <laughs> um, get, get some, find a way to talk to somebody about it. I think that's really helpful. First of all, because early intervention does protect you from going down to the bad end of the spectrum. And also, I, I said on, on the interview that some people who just have bad, low mood one day call it depression. But you saying that, I want people to validate their experience at the other end of the spectrum too, and not to denigrate that. And that people do need to really access support when they are depressed. Yes, and it brings up that question of kind of diagnosis is quite a complex area, isn't it? Because I often think about diagnosis in terms of a sort of structure that we sort of superficially create to some extent in order to work out access to support, to medication, to treatment for research purposes and for sort of NHS purposes. But for some people, it really doesn't fit. And some people, it really does. When In the beginning, when you mentioned about bipolar diagnosis, which she corrected you on, um, mm. it's a really sensitive thing, isn't it? For some people, uh, getting a diagnosis of something is a, a really empowering experience. It's, it's a portal to get the support that you need, whether it's medication or health insurance to, to, to pay for support, particularly in the US. And also, though, we can have very ambivalent relationships to those labels. They can feel very alienating. Yeah, because they can be limiting. Yes, and I think, like you say, so there is a big variation in response so I also know quite a lot of people who just felt massively relieved when they got a diagnosis because it's like oh this thing that I've been struggling with for years and years like why school has been so hard why friendships have been so hard it's not because there's something wrong with me it's because I'm on the autism spectrum and my brain works differently and I'm not doing something wrong but the world hasn't really been designed for me and so it's harder for me and now I have a way of making sense of it. And I also can find like-minded people. I have communities that I can find. And for me also, I mean, definitely working with children, diagnosis is not 
always helpful. I think where diagnosis can be helpful beyond access to resources and making sense of things is just thinking about what is driving symptoms. So, for example, a child who might be really, really hyperactive all over the place, not able to regulate to a sort of really large degree, I think diagnosis can be helpful when you're thinking about putting that those symptoms in context. So are these symptoms being driven by ADHD? Like, is that what is driving symptoms? Or actually has this child experienced a lot of really dysregulating events and that's being played out in their behavior? And those are two quite different things that really affect how you, the the treatment interventions that you're going to go ahead and use. And that is where I think diagnosis can also be really helpful in guiding treatment Mm. intervention. To shift the lens to something else, I was wondering what your thoughts are about humour. When she she said, when it's unbearable, if you make me laugh, then I can bear it. And that a lot of the books that she'd read about depression weren't funny, so she couldn't read them or watch them. And of course, humour is both her lifesaver and her defence. And she's really funny. I mean, she really made me laugh a lot in that conversation. And the power of being made to laugh. I felt connected with her most when we laughed together as well. I was thinking about the power of humour, but also the humour as a defence. So in the sense that I think humour can allow you sometimes to name the unnameable, you know, in those dark moments, I think, Dark, dark humour that can yeah. just create connection in the middle of sort of incredibly bleak landscapes or as a survival or a moment where you come alive again and draw people back in when you feel very far apart. Also, it, it can be a way of trying to name something, but if it, if you don't in other spaces, maybe safer spaces, actually create safety to explore what's underneath. I remember working with a client in Ireland who had experienced childhood sexual abuse at school and it was a kind of running joke about the teachers who had abused them. They'd go to the pub, they'd all get a bit drunk and they'd make a few cracks. And it was like a way of naming something that otherwise everyone was too ashamed to name. So it felt like in that sense, yeah. humour was helpful in stepping into getting, getting it, out. it out. Or like naming something that you're ashamed of, making a crack about a really embarrassing story can take away some of the shame. But it doesn't, uh, deal with doesn't it. necessarily then heal the actual pain that's underneath that the humor sort of serving as a defense or a function. Does that make sense? I always was thinking about, um, did any of you watch Nanette on Netflix? Um, it's a, a really brilliant uh, stand-up comedy with lesbian queer woman from Tasmania in Sydney Opera House who basically has the stand-up where she, for the first half hour, is being very, very funny and about, very deprecating about herself. And then it switches halfway through where she basically says, that humour is damaging to her because it makes light of her own suffering. <laughs> that for sort of marginalised people, self-deprecatory humour is just another way of humiliating themselves, but to try and stay and have a voice. And she was like, at the end of it, it's like, I'm not prepared to do comedy anymore. It's too high wow. a price to play. I think a while later she came back, but with a different relationship to comedy. Um, it was It's a really fascinating kind of, reveal of, of the, I guess, the complex mm. role of humour. Do you think she knew she was going to say that? <laughs> yes, it was It was a part of the set. That must have been um, interesting to be like watching that live, be like, Ooh. it's very powerful. <laughs> was I supposed to be laughing? <laughs> it's very powerful to watch. By the end, I think most people are crying. I certainly was, and so was my husband. <laughs> 
So I did have some other thoughts, which was really around complex trauma. But it really does sound to me like Ruby experienced complex trauma. And if you mm, don't know what that repeated. is, the definition of complex trauma is when terrifying experiences happen to you during childhood and adolescence. So some form of abuse, but they're perpetuated by someone who should be a caregiver. So someone who is in a position of trust. So complex trauma is like the sort of perfect storm of trauma, but from somebody who should be taking care of you, like an attachment relationship. Mm -hmm. And what we know from research is that if you experience complex trauma, then it really affects the neurology of your brain and it makes it much more difficult to self-regulate. Because what happens is that you don't really have a way of assessing what is safe and what is dangerous. So the amygdala, which is the kind of alarm bell system in your brain, a lot of you probably know this already, but it means that that alarm bell system is stuck on permanently. So you're, everything is dangerous. So you can't really form relationships very easily. When you grow up, you're much more vulnerable to toxic relationships. It's harder for you to learn. You're more vulnerable to addiction. There's really negative like physical outcomes because of the sort of constant cortisol, high level of cortisol flowing around your system because you're in this constant state of alert and danger. And I think the point that I really want to make is that for children that have experienced complex trauma, early intervention is just so essential. And if you know someone or you're caring for a child that has experienced complex trauma, the type of intervention that you really, really need is interpersonal. So you need to be able to heal that trauma within the context of relationships. So the way that the trauma was perpetuated was through the relationship. And therefore, the most effective way to heal that trauma is also in a relationship. And that was really what I, the point that I wanted to make. And I've done a lot of that work and it's very, very hard, <laughs> but also incredibly powerful. And for those uh, adults who want to explore more about this, I would really recommend Caroline Spring, who does very affordable trainings on complex trauma that are for both clinicians, but they're also for people who've experienced trauma. We can put that on the show notes if you're an adult trying to understand the impact of complex trauma on your life. And to take a further point is when you have had no experience of consistent, reliable relationships or seeing how they have been lived, that is very stony ground to make your own on. Yeah, or, or a sort of anything, really. Like, it's hard, I think, in a work context. I think it makes everything mm-hmm. really, really hard. You know, she described it, Ruby, as not having the toolbox, like not in her toolbox, having a loving relationship. And yet she does. I mean, often we talk about not talking about Ruby herself, Mm. but mindfulness for her was a lifesaver. So when Em talks about the fire alarm in your head going off, mindfulness was the thing that dialed down the fire alarm, which so for other people listening, if they have that mindfulness yoga, any of those practices that lower your regulation, breathing exercises, yeah. I remember in my therapy training when you learn, obviously you learn a lot about attachment theory and the different types of insecure attachment and then secure attachment. And then I really loved this like extra category of attachment, which was earned attachment. That Oh, uh, Yeah. So even if you have experienced insecure attachment, whatever that 
insecure attachment is ambivalent. You can disorganize. You can, as an adult or as later in adolescence, form a relationship in which you have a secure attachment. And from that, that can be your foundation of having a secure attachment relationship. And that's called earned attachment. Mm. I love that. I can't give you any references, but I remember it very clearly being like, oh, your childhood is not the end. It's not the end. We're still always, our brains are plastic. Yeah. Her ending conclusion, wasn't it? It was about coming to some form of acceptance of who you are kind of meeting yourself where you're at rather than where you'd like to be or where you'd like your life to be or what you'd wished happened to you. And I was thinking, I think sometimes when people say that, I think that's a real moment of taking responsibility for yourself and for your life in a, in a caring way, as opposed to a, a giving up or a letting go. Or I think often when we don't like who we are maybe, or the life situation that we're in, we can either cast blame into the past or we can constantly be chasing the future like if that happens when then it will be better then and actually there's a real power in going this is where I'm at and that's okay it's okay that I'm this way and that's a lovely point to end thank you both so much as ever thank you everyone who's listening and if you think this conversation it would be helpful for your friends or family do share it it helps other people find us if you rate and review and until next week thanks a lot bye